Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 282, Parish and Protest. Last time then we heard something about how economic change affected different groups in society and something about the different regions in which those changes played out. And I promised we would progress yet further, yet deeper, with oily rag and wrench held firmly in hand into the engine room of English life, to the parish. And so here we are, my opportunity to introduce you to the English parish. Listener, English parish, how do you do? English parish, gentle listener, how do you do? Now, I have to confess, my ignorance is pretty total about the relative importance of the parish in the religious and secular lives of other countries around the world over the centuries, but I can tell you it is a super important part of the English story, both from the point of view of the ordinary people, in which category I put pretty much everyone, with the possible exception of the tippy-top aristocracy, and from the grander, more highfalutin viewpoint of the formation of the modern English state. And let me tell you, you faluters wear as much as you like, you will get no higher in English history than the formation of the English state in terms of falutin. At our current point in time, quivering in the morning dew like a young doe or buck on the pivot of the fundamental changes of the early modern age, parishes go through a change of which you might weep about as cataclysmic, celebrate as invigorating and dynamic, but which everyone will describe as fundamental and dramatic. In fact, the point has been made rather testily that the requirements of the Protestant Reformation and the constant historical debate about said Reformation has rather overemphasised our view of the importance of the parish in late medieval days, that can, we can be wont to forget 
all the other apparatus of the medieval church, the corporate apparatus, if you like, of monasteries, nunneries, chantries, hospitals, almshouses. But of course, many of those will disappear or be changed by the Reformation. What remains most strongly are the parish. The parish is a pastoral centre and as a centre of secular governance. The parish was the space where the drama of most people's lives were played out, both affected by its community and adorning it. The parish network had grown out of the old Minster network established in the early centuries of Anglo-Saxon England and developed their shape essentially to suit the needs of the nobility. As you may know if you are a Shedcast member, nudge, nudge, wink, and if I may, wink, late Anglo-Saxon England and the Norman centuries saw the fissioning of the old, large Anglo-Saxon royal estates into a series of smaller manors in order to endow, pay and reward the elite that supported the king and his kingdom. The new nobility liked having their own place, and they adorned the cake of their manor with the cherries of ever-grander halls and then castles, and their very own church and priest. As the church organised its diocese and administration, these manors often became parishes as well, because it's easier that way. By the 13th century, the structure of the parishes was largely settled, save for a bit of tinkering around the edges. They were formed then around the needs of the secular church, the parish church and minister sort of thing. The late medieval parish was a rather more richly adorned entity than the early medieval version had been, and one main reason for this was the concept of purgatory. As the concept sank its teeth into the psyche of society, investment and devotion followed, in the form of chantry chapels with associated priests and clerks to pay for the souls of the dead and conduct services in the chapels of the church. Fraternities of people grew up around those devotions and chantries, which, quite apart from their main purpose, gave involvement in communal life for all, whether rich or poor, male or female. Alongside those fraternities might also be confraternities established by guilds or corporations, depending on where you lived. And alongside those, of course, are the more national and corporate institutions like monasteries. With 9,000 parishes and around 900 monastic institutions, by no means every parish would have a monastery, but a significant number would, well, you know, 10%. And in addition, monastic institutions were not tied or bound by the parish and therefore might have relationships and ties with more than one. Together with the richly visual nature of the late medieval Catholic religion, what do you have then are churches which were often sumptuously and flamboyantly equipped with both furnishings and with people. We are not just talking about the village vicar and clerk of the village of Miss Reed and Trollope. No indeed, sir. To return briefly to the debate of the morbidity or vitality of the late medieval church, although very briefly, since we have probably done that to death now, don't want to do it again, one of the many things that helped us understand that actually whatever its problems, the late medieval church remained vital and central in the localities, was the thing standing in plain sight, the lavish and widespread rebuilding and extension of church buildings. There is perpendicular architecture all over England. All of this investment in religious stuff, fabric and people was helped by the conditions of the late 15th and early 16th century. Not many people, but relatively buoyant individual wealth. The better off had money to spend, and they often spent it with great pride by beautifying their own locality, in the form of the church, most obviously, and through donations in their wills when they died, 
whether donations for their soul to be sung maybe by the chantry priest at the parish church or for the poor of the parish, or most commonly, they gave for both. The parish is therefore central to all of this sense of community pride, and pride of place was very strong in this one. And that community showed itself in many ways. There was a physical aspect to it, in the annual beating of the bounds, for example, on Ascension Day or Rogation Day, the latter being the 25th of April. So, the parish priest would set out around the boundaries of the parish with the officials of the parish, and importantly, with a cloud of small boys with willow twigs or birch twigs, and they'd give the boundaries a jolly good beating, just in case they were thinking of moving. You chose small boys on the principle that they were incipient blokes, and this is a patriarchal world, as I may have mentioned half a billion times or so, and because then, hopefully, the collective memory of where the boundaries were would last longer via those soon-to-be big blokes. Beating the bounds is a tradition that some still carry out today. It wobbled under the Edwardian Reformation, but just like the Weebles, it merely wobbled and did not fall down, because Elizabeth took a much more relaxed view of the whole thing. In common with many festivals of the year, the church was heavily involved in it, and there were other activities or rites built around it, so you might have a church ale at the end of the beating of the bounds. Begging might be allowed for that day, that sort of thing. The church and the parish were at the very heart of life. I have been frequently told that I cannot consider myself to have even placed my dainty slipper on the first step of the long and winding road to the status of historian until I have read The History of Middle by a chap called Richard Goff, who was essentially a wealthy peasant of the parish, a yeoman. Now Richard was writing in 1700, and so in a way his world is a long way from the late medieval one, and yet there are many commonalities. Richard knows the fabric of his parish world in fine detail. He runs it lovingly through his fingers and knows the texture of it without needing to see. The parish is his world, and yet he is connected through it to a more regional community as people move away or come and join, and also to a wider national community too, and that's important. It is indeed a good read and will give you an entrance not just to 1700 England, but also the breeze of 1500 will kiss your cheek as well. Richard Goff, The History of Middle. Anyway, what was I saying? Central. Yes, that's it. Central. The church lay at the heart of it all. The church and its officials, principally the church warden and his assistants, the sidesmen. More and more also, there will be the village constable. The church warden writes out his accounts and every year they are approved by the parish, which we'll come to. The parish chest contains all the written records of the village, those same accounts, deeds, inventories, legal agreements of the people. The church warden's accounts are almost a history of the parish in a way, their collective memory. The parish would keep costumes and instruments for the seasonal rituals and events. They'd organise such events because they were an important source of fundraising as well as fulfilling their actual specific function. And they provided a release for the tensions of the hierarchies of the time. But we'll talk about festivities at some other time, I deem, so hold your horses on the specifics around that. The parish gave a role for various groups within society. For women, for example, the parish gave visibility through things like attendance at church, it gave status through the veneration of a range of female saints, and it gave involvement too. 
Although women were denied decision-making through the formal governance system, fraternities and guilds gave them a voice. The poorer members of the parish also had some involvement, since giving was then considered a condition of the well-regulated parish, rather than being viewed as a generous and optional gift. And the poor were also engaged with a specific voice. Very often, they actually got to vote, because the parish was a deeply and increasingly political arena as well. And not just in that touchy-feely sense, have you warned the boss that your forthcoming public presentation is going to reveal his cherished project as an arrant piece of nonsense sort of way. Real politics. Because, as you might tell from the foregoing, by 1500 the parish was no longer simply an ecclesiastical construct. It was a civil one as well, as the state began to intervene and demand things of the parish in terms of public administration. Now this will really get going post-Reformation, But even pre-Reformation, some parishes experimented with road and bridge repairs, for example. And the Exchequer had tried on occasion to organise national taxation through the parish. As time went by, public administration became an increasingly important part of the churchwarden's life. To illustrate the point, one study compared expenditure from the early days of churchwarden's accounts with the last pre-Reformation set. What they showed was the expenditure on church fabric decreasing and expenditure on administration and support increasing, so supporting the argument that secular administration was becoming a more and more important part of the parish's role. Parish income could become fiendishly complicated, relying on investments and land, and by the mid-16th century litigation was frighteningly common. The Tudors essentially loved a bit of court action. So sue me was not a dismissal or challenge in Tudor days, simply a statement of the inevitable next step. But I was talking of politics. First of all, the warning, which I should have issued at the start of this section, every parish is different, and all of this that proceeds and follows is vile and extravagant generalisation. This is not a trendy or religious, every sperm is sacred type of thing, this is just a point of fact. Localism was so much stronger then than it is now. So, the way your parish was run would vary according to local customary rites, the quality and learning of your priest and church wardens, whether your gentry was resident, the economic makeup of your village, the topography of the region you inhabited. But for many parishes, the management of the parish was quite inclusive in late medieval and early 16th century England. For example... The churchwarden's accounts of Bethesden in 1525 Kent charged the sexton to give all the parish a warning that the whole parish should appear together the 8th day of January, that they might have a communication of how many keen belonged to the church of Bethesden, and also to have a perfect knowledge under what manner or form they were given to the church. Keen means cattle, by the way. So that sounds great, collective communication, wide involvement. Now... The more cynical in the world of professional historians, and there are cynical historians, question the reality behind this inclusive and collective language, i.e. is everyone really going to just look at the honcho who is the most head and follow their lead? But such language is all over the place. How to provide for holy bread to be distributed after mass, contributing to parochial levies, attending audits and visitations and there are remarkable examples of this parish democracy in action. In the 1530s, 
There was a debate about Clark's wages. A vote was taken, and 94% of the 33 households turned out and duly voted. The parish officers would be elected, church wardens and sidesmen and constable. Being elected constable might be something of a nightmare, actually, given that you were meant to keep order at chucking out time with nothing more than a croquet mallet and a stick of celery. But what the heck? Your fellow parishioners trusted you. It is interesting to speculate what impact this and the participatory aspects of local justice had on English political thought. It is a long way in the future, but in the 1640s, the Levellers will produce some genuinely radical political thoughts, and it's fun to speculate, possibly mindlessly at this stage, that this experience of local democracy helped form those ideas. There is the odd, solid link. So. One William Wallin, for example, would be part of the Leveller movement, and before things kicked off with civil wars and all that, there he was in his local parish, demanding and getting a complete review and reformation of said parish by the people of the parish. Just a thought, as once advanced by one Beat Cumin, now a prophet, Warwick University, and so a thought with more authority than I could give it. Most of the time here at the History of England, we spend our time talking about vertical relationships. Most of the time, it is these horizontal relationships in the parish that meant most to people and filled their minds. And as you can see, there are many positives. It has been said that if there ever was a Merry England, then it was now. Now being the late 15th century and early 16th, when increasingly individual wealth led to spending on the fabric of the parish. When the ritual year was attended by a wider range of games and festivals, when a cross section of the parish held real authority and collectively their voice could be heard, as well as the great families of the parish, people realised that collective institutions bestowed more power on local communities than most individuals could muster on their own. There is a but coming. I know you can hear the but. In fact. There are many buts. We live in a world of buts. In fact, some of the buts relate to not getting carried away with the beauty of all of this. Part of it is where we stand now, mid 16th century, since we're in the flight path of change. To deal with the but, this varies a lot from place to place. None of it removes any of the objections and complaints that would lie at the heart of the Reformation. Priests unable to say the liturgy, non-attendance at church, lack of participation. Anti-clericalism, irritation with tithes, personal disputes—that sort of thing. Late medieval society was not at home to Mr. and Mrs. Equality, or even the little Equality children. It was deeply, deeply hierarchical. There can be no doubt that everyone knew who the really important people were among the church officers, and their influence would be duly stronger. There are plenty of places where the church wardens themselves were right little satans, trying to boss the place and causing untold upset. In addition, things were changing anyway, with or without the Reformation. One of these was the increasing differentiation made between deserving and undeserving poor. This is usually something associated with post-Reformation, but as with many aspects of daily life charged to the count of post-Reformation England, the process was already well underway. It's under the Yorkist kings that the concept of deserving and undeserving poor first begins to appear. And by differentiating between worthy and unworthy recipients of poor relief, the foundation was laid for the violence of the response to the 16th-century surge in population and poverty. We have mentioned the increasing secularisation of parish administration, and along with that are the signs of an increasing power of oligarchies within the parish, where it was always the most wealthy and powerful members of the local community who were elected to become the officers. So. 
1522 to 3, it was only a body of only five men who administered the affairs for Morbath Parish. At Halberton, six men were elected to carry out the work of the parish. This is a small step. Often these bodies remained elected by the whole parish once a year, but more frequently, these would be the same families every year. And they would be from those families that occupied the front pews of the church, because there's another change usually associated with much later the arrival of box pews in church and their allocation to specific families. That is a growing feature of the late Middle Ages. That kind of brings us up to the point of the Reformation, which would of course have such a dramatic effect on religious life and on secular parish life too, which we will continue to explore in the future. For the moment, we'll take the story to where we are mid-century-ish. You will not be surprised to learn, of course, that religious life in the parish was deeply affected in ways both large and small. The changes to the liturgy, to the physical space of the church, with the dramatic and colourful images whitewashed and removed, rude screen torn down, altars stripped. With the communion table set up in the centre of the church now, around which the congregation would gather, in line with the principle of greater participation that lay at the heart of the Protestant Reformation, with the Bible in English available to all and set in every parish church, with the interactive drama of the service in Cramer's Book of Common Prayer and the more frequent communion taken in both kinds. These are the day-to-day changes that would have affected people's everyday experience and we've probably discussed them more than enough. To create a summary, the way music changed seems to me to be, rather crudely maybe, a useful metaphor. So, where once the congregation in larger churches would have heard a choir sing complex and beautiful polyphonic music, music with lots of voices and complex harmonies, after the Reformation, outside of the cathedrals where it carried on, those choirs would largely be gone. But the congregation would now be involved and participating in the much simpler monophonic singing of the Psalms. So you can now grade me on the effectiveness of my metaphors. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I have also talked a lot about the reactions to the Reformation on an individual level, so again, I don't propose to go into it again in great detail here. I have talked about the big outbursts of rage against the Reformation, the prayer book rebellion in Cornwall, the pilgrimage of grace. But of course, the vast majority of interactions and responses were parish by parish, individual by individual. It's here where the Reformation was implemented bit by bit throughout the 16th century. Priests and church wardens in their parishes reacted in many different ways. Often, they were reluctant to respond at all, and they were forced into action by visitations, particularly under King Edward. On occasion, they even buried the beautiful objects they loved in the hope of the return to better times. Rather less frequently, they might be zealous in their adoption of any new rules. And the same applies in reverse under Mary, though the impression again there 
is that the progress in replacing the lost artefacts of the old religion was relatively swift. There was also a large swathe of dutiful conformity. So one study by Caroline Litzenberger looked at St Michael's Church in Gloucester and recorded a dutiful, and expensive actually, compliance with the constantly changing edicts. St Michael's appears to have been a parish where the concern of the church warden was to make sure they provided a consistent and vital centre to the religious life of their city, whatever the particular changes coming in. And there were probably many of those. And there's a sort of avoidance, a don't bother me just trying to keep the authorities off their back approach too, in some ways. So, here's a nice example from the church wardens of Suffolk. You may know there was quite a fuss about the dress of ministers under Edward, with some demanding that ministers should be wearing very ordinary clothes indeed, to avoid the did not want to comply. Clearly in this example, Suffolk really didn't know what they ought to do. So they reported to their archdeacon that the minister does not usually wear the surplus, nor does he refuse to wear it, which is an impressive piece of diplomatic speak to avoid answering a question. Whatever the reaction of the parish and its inhabitants, one clear impact of the Reformation was to increase the potential for conflict over religion, in which, of course, the story of the parish would reflect the story of the nation, which is to once more emphasise the importance and centrality of the parish for understanding the lives of most ordinary people. Some priests would find themselves in conflict with their own congregations for negligence, or in conflict with their own congregations for excessive zeal. This is a feature which doesn't go away for a very long time. So, a vicar in Wiltshire in 1686 for example, found himself in a lot of trouble with both the profane and the passionate dissidents of the parish. One day, he came back to his porch to find it shamefully polluted with human excrements to the near quantity of a barrelful, which they had laid against the door and also filled the keyhole. A little gross, I think. But I am actually quite interested in the mechanics of collecting a whole barrowful of human excrement. All I can hope is that maybe the shades of our Wiltshire vicar will feel a little bit mollified by the fact that his pain is still remembered and sympathised over all this time later by you and I, so spare him a thought in your day ahead. There is some debate about the impact of the Reformation on participation and power within the parish. And we start again with the howl of pain that accompanies the destruction of 30,000 parochial chantres in 1548, the end of the confraternities, 20,000 chapels go, half of the 500 almshouses were closed. There is no doubt that there was a significant impact on the jobs available for members of the parish and therefore participation, and particularly for women and for poorer households with the loss of the confraternities. Over the reign of Elizabeth, the trend is towards the oligarchy of the better off. This has been at the heart of the historiography of the death of Merry England. However, there are some other factors to bear in mind. One was that greater stratification of parish society was an existing trend well before the Reformation, which we have discussed a little earlier in the episode. Secondly, 
It's very difficult to underestimate the importance of population growth in the second half of the 16th century and the turmoil that that creates, including the early appearance of the economic and social freedoms and polarizations of capitalism. The point is once again that as far as social change is concerned, religious reformation is just one piece of the puzzle. And then in other ways, more opportunities for involvement appeared. As the 16th century wore on, new jobs were created in the parish as the state began to intrude more and demand more of parish life. So, for example, in 1555, all parishes were required to appoint a surveyor of highways. Two years later, they acquired the responsibility to provide and maintain weapons for the militia. The constable, armed with his croquet mallet and stick of celery, would be transformed into local administrators for local justices of the peace. More parochial charities would be formed, and of course, the reform and enhancement of the poor law would require a supervisor of the poor. So, there were lots of new roles, new ways of participating. When all is said and done, though, the super summary is that the politics of the parish tended towards the concentration of power into smaller elites as the 16th century turned into 17th, with the appearance in some parishes of a thing called the closed vestry, which were citadels of power of the well-off, where management of the parish was concentrated in a very few hands. As time goes on, there begins to be an increasing sense of separation between elites and poorer households. The language changes with the creation of a language of identity that separated the elite from what they termed the vulgar sort. A culture of politeness takes hold, through which the poor are rather sidelined, and attitudes from elites towards the poor become more of condescension and even fear, which we'll come back to when we get there, giving a sneak peek of the delights in store for you. If the late medieval and early 16th century world begin to see the creation of greater social hierarchies, what did that mean then? for the poorer household. First of all, it's important to be wary of a simple definition of these hierarchies into economic ones, of a simple difference between rich and poor. Just like your neighbourhood, wherever you are, there are currents and eddies of enormous complexity based on gender, family, age, social status, economic status, religion, all of that. Economic or social status was not the be-all and end-all and only thing. So, for example, let us go back to the village of Hiley. The jury in the Hiley's manorial court drew on participants from all across the social range. Interestingly, the office of church warden was held at various times by a servant, by cottagers, as well as yeomen. Essentially, you can see that access to offices remained often quite open. In Chester, the hierarchy was reflected in the pews of the church, and there were more hierarchies more deeply extended than in Highley, as you might expect, in a town with a greater population. And they were also more clearly defined. The offices, however, were still very broadly distributed across social groups. Nebula's concept of neighbourliness were also important, a concept which recognised reciprocal obligations, whatever your status. And those that failed to meet the standard, like Richard Bowerhouse, an unquiet and turbulent person amongst his neighbours, should accept reproof. Unlike one Cheshire villager, they would need to declare themselves willing that all such matters be laid away 
so that they might live in love and charity as becomes good Christians to do. Neighbourliness is an important ever-present concept, but it would be difficult to argue that the idea of neighbourliness trumped the realities of power, status and position, but rather it moderated reactions to conflict and the extent of that conflict. But it sat alongside a much more powerful idea, that of custom. Custom, my old friend, we have come to speak with you again, for I guess this is something that has raised its handsome head constantly, but that's a good thing too. So, do you remember at work all those extraordinarily tiresome people who announced the phrase, but we've always done it that way, to be a bad phrase, to be avoided, that if you dare say such a thing, you'll be cast into the outer darkness along with Lister and Rimmer? Well, next time somebody says that to you at work, you may pipe up and tell them, huh, it's a good job you're not living in the 16th century, you'd really stuck there. How effective that will be as a put-down line, I'm not prepared to say, but if you do try it, I would love to hear how it goes. I mean, I'd really love to hear it. Anyway, my point is that custom, we've always done it that way, is a good thing in the 16th century, capital G, capital T. And the less powerful knew that custom was their powerful ally in the never-ending battle against the rich and powerful. The constant presence of courts in people's lives, there were loads of them, as we will come to at some point, meant that, as I previously mentioned, folks were thoroughly well-versed in their use. And villagers would very often challenge their betters in the courts if they flouted what they believed to be local custom. Now, local custom was often very difficult to establish because it was rarely written down, but tellingly, when it was accepted, it was a trump card. When it was successfully deployed, the evil innovator and stealer of souls, of course these days being the middle classes of the bourgeoisie, embodiment of all that is wrong with the world, would be required to sink back to their fetid lair. For an example, at Wigston in Leicestershire, 31 copyholders fought their lord at law. They insisted on their customary tenure rights, which their lord did not recognise. This case went on for 21 years. Yes, 21 years. Until eventually one day, the landlord threw up his arms and flounced and just allowed the tenants to buy their darned holdings. See if I care, I can't deal with this problem anymore. And there was much rejoicing. And again, presumably much ale. Challenge and resistance might not be as dramatic as going to court. It might be passive or dumb insolence, which as every teenager knows is a highly effective tactic. One morning then, when a bright new landlord took possession of a group of manors in Yorkshire and Northumberland, they sent a surveyor out into the countryside to discover what the land was like, what customs applied, rents paid, all that. To their enormous frustration, the surveyors were received with complete silence and avoidance. All the villagers had agreed they would say nothing. So the poor old surveyors could find out nothing. Resistance could be more overt than that, so let me take you to Osmington in Dorset, where the villagers were in furious dispute with their landlord. One morning, when the landlord left his house, he was confronted by a clear and present understanding of his tenant's opinion of him and what they would like to do with him they had erected a gallows outside of his house. In defence of custom, then, many villagers viewed the agents of economic and religious change as dreadful innovators and the work of rich men and gentlemen. And however we emphasise the complexities of parish politics and the different groups, it's hard to deny that one constant theme was very much about kicking against the hierarchy. 
On that line, there is a healthy historiography about a bright thread of popular resistance to authority and in defence of the rights of the common man, which runs all the way through English history, and a fine historiography it is. However, it is also sadly true to say and important to note that the association between popular revolt and radicalism, as opposed to resistance to authority, is not strong before the civil wars. I mean, sometimes it's there. So we might think of John Ball and his When Adam delved and Eve span, who was then a gentleman? We might think of the complaints of the people of Lincolnshire when deserted by their gentry in the early days of the Pilgrimage of Grace. And where we stand then, around mid-16th century, we are, after all, nearing the end of a very turbulent period of popular rebellion, with the commotion time of 1549 in particular. So, you might look at me strangely when I say that radicalism was not a strong part of popular history to this point. What can he mean? But my point is that a notable feature of all sorts of popular rebellion, including the commotion time and the pilgrimage of grace, is actually just how conservative they are. Despite the ever-increasing fear among the better-off of the many-headed monster of the poor, in fact, the majority of rebellions and lesser, lesser resistance was about stopping innovation, returning to the way things were, about the primacy of customs and the way we have always done things. They owed a lot to what E.P. Thompson would refer to as a moral economy in reference to 18th-century food riots. In the views of most people, decisions should be fair should be in accordance with law and in accordance with custom. When these rules were transgressed by those in power and rebellion occurred, articulations of these moral laws and customs were drawn up by the rebels, like the mousehold articles in Norwich or the written-down demands of the pilgrimage of grace. Rebellions were conducted with great orderliness very often, every effort taken to curb excess, strenuous efforts made to stress that they meant no violence to the rights of the monarch who had simply been badly advised, i.e. rebellion doesn't mean radicalism. There is a strong commonality across most forms of resistance, whether a local enclosure riot or a large-scale protest such as those in 1549. But it would be equally wrong to view the rebels as purely innocent, pure and clean seekers after the revealed and obvious truth. First of all, custom was rarely clear and simple, it was fiercely contested. Secondly, people were perfectly capable of popping a smidge of self-interested innovation into the pie. It's a bit later than our period, but in 1621, the copyholders of Durham fought against the miners of Newcastle in the law. Their claim was one of rightful resistance to the innovation of mining against their customary manorial rights. However, mixed in there was also an entirely innovatory claim to their monopoly of transportation rights of coal across their lands. Under the radar, custom was evolving, and it was not just the rich and powerful who were capable of exploiting that for their own gain. Now, given the weakness of the instruments of coercion of the Tudor state, no standing army or police force for starters, you might well wonder why on earth there wasn't simply an explosion of rebellion, especially against the background of increasing dearth for a large section of the population as the number of poor grew, as we've discussed earlier. Especially since, as you are hopefully beginning to see, there is a sort of political space emerging in the parish. The phrase political space is one used more commonly in later Elizabethan and 17th century national contexts with the growth of pamphlets and ballads and chapbooks 
and other commonly available forms of public communication. But at the parish level, it's a political consciousness that's already beginning to grow. So, why did people not exercise that joint power more than they did? And in fact, the movement is away from popular rebellion from here on in. Although there are events in Elizabethan and Jacobean England, they're much smaller and there is nothing of the scale of the commotion time or the pilgrimage of grace. The answer is a mix of things, a mosaic. As I have mentioned, although the poor versus elite narrative seems a common thread, there are other where loyalties and values crossed and trumped such a boundary. The moral education and restraint of the young was one of them. Religious allegiances was another. There were common cultural ties, such as the expectations of neighbourliness and the culture of deference, the habit of participation inherent in the parish offices and systems, and indeed the distraction of shared festivals. The availability of forums like the manorial or church court allowed a non-violent route to express dissent. And the poor knew they could also play and manipulate hierarchies, though by doing so they implicitly strengthened those hierarchies and participated in them. So, by accepting the hierarchies, those further down the scale could often successfully negotiate concessions. In 1534, for example, Henry VIII was forced to withdraw his forced loan on local resistance. On a more local level, enclosure might be moderated or even stopped by dissent. Plus, the economic changes were removing some of the mechanisms to rebellion, and this, popped at the end of the episode, might well actually be the biggest emerging change of all. Robert Askew, leader of the Pilgrimage of Grace, was a lawyer. Robert Kett, one of the leaders of the commotion time in 1549 East Anglia, was a yeoman, a much better off member of the village. All through the rebellions of late medieval and early 16th century England, it was the middling sort that initiate and led riot and rebellion. Their identity was often strongly on the side of the villagers. They felt a powerful responsibility to lead and to moderate. Now this begins to change. The yeomanry and middling sort begin to identify now with the social elites. As the 16th century grew older, as wealth among landowners grew, as the opportunities of capitalism began to appear, the middling sort began to be no longer willing to lead rebellion in that way anymore. They had too much to lose, and indeed, too much to gain. This has impacts on all sections of society, and changes attitude amongst the poorer members too. It's a story maybe for the 17th century, but there is a corresponding move for wage labourers towards self-reliance and independence, the spirit of provide and of makeshift and mend. Greater social mobility would deliver benefits as well as challenges for the poorer member of the parish, and that spirit of independence and individualism would be a feature of English rural attitudes constantly remarked on by contemporaries. But that is for another day. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Sometimes I do think I'm not assiduous enough in thanking all of you who get in touch or write reviews. The iTunes reviews are brilliant. Thank you. There are loads of people who comment also on Facebook. I love those reviews too. So all of it is great. Thank you. And I weep over everyone. Well, not weep, but you know, I appreciate everyone. So thank you. And thank you to my members, of course, for keeping me free and happy. I'm seeking to return to the three weeks in four regime here on the History of England, so there will be an episode next week. We will keep our oily rags by our side since we're going deeper into the engine room of society, now down to the household, which really is the basic unit 
of society. Join me on the doorstep then, and in the meantime, good luck and have a great week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 